Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, a conversation with Ryan Leaf, who 20 years ago, was in contention with Peyton Manning for the number one pick of the 1998 draft. His life and his career have taken many hairpin turns since then. And we'll discuss all of it right after a couple of thoughts about the NFL entering week 17. You know, always, in my memory anyway, always entering week 17 there's either a win-and-you're-in situation as far as a division winner or maybe a fascinating wild-card contest to see who gets the last wild-card or two. And this year, there really isn't much of anything. I mean, all uh, seven of the eight divisions have already been won entering the final week. The eighth division, the NFC South, will have a championship game when New Orleans and Carolina face off in Week 17. But think about it. What really does it matter? One of them is going to be the four seed. One of them is going to be the five seed. The only thing riding on this, quite honestly, is a home playoff game. And look, that's a lot, but it's not like you're talking about missing out on the playoffs. So not a lot of real interest entering Week 17. Three playoff spots, the fifth and sixth seed, uh, in the AFC and the sixth seed in the NFC are up for grabs, but hard to imagine any of the teams that are going to make it out of those three uh, really are going to make a lot of noise in the playoffs. I just want to uh, talk about one thing coming into the last week that I know uh, makes Eagles fans just get major league angst, and that is how their team is going to perform in the playoffs without – Carson Wentz. I think we saw on Monday night, Christmas night in week 16, what happens now without Carson Wentz. It's enough to, even though he's going to miss the last three games of the season, you know, and a good chunk of a fourth game, the the game in Los Angeles, uh, which he already missed, obviously, you're left to just say, wow, is there any way that this guy can be the most valuable player, basically having played about 12 and a half games? Uh, I don't think he can. Um, I think there should be a standard where uh, somebody who plays 16 games and has great value, like Tom Brady, would be worth more to me than Carson Wentz. But be that as it may, I mean, clearly the Philadelphia Eagles are in major, major playoff trouble. 
And I think one of the things that stuck out to me watching a good deal of that Christmas night game is just that I thought that the offensive line was going to be good enough where they say, hey, listen, if we need to steamroll a defense, we'll do that. If we need the running game to be the dominant piece of the puzzle, we can do that. The Eagles couldn't do that. They ran okay, but not great. And I think now coming into the last week of the season, Doug Peterson, the coach of the Eagles, has a major, major problem facing him. First of all, he doesn't have to play any of his starters if he doesn't want to because the last game of the year in Week 17 is truly defines meaningless. It, it, it doesn't matter to anything about their standing in the playoffs, and obviously they've already won the NFC East. But I just remember over the years when teams have clinched home field throughout the playoffs and they play Week 17 like it really doesn't matter. The Indianapolis Colts did it, and I think it really messed up Peyton Manning a couple in a couple of playoff runs. Uh, Mike McCarthy has done it with Aaron Rodgers, and I think with disastrous results a few years ago when uh, they lost in the first round of the playoffs to the Giants after Rodgers basically hadn't played football for 20 days. So now you look at the Philadelphia Eagles, I think if you're Doug Peterson, Nick Foles has to play uh, in Week 17 on Sunday. And so if he plays, the rest of the number one offense should play too because you're trying to get in sync uh, to get ready for the playoffs, which you know are two weeks after Week 17 if you've got a bye. So I, I think even though... He's got some guys on that offense who could use the time off, who could use sort of a long winter's nap uh, before opening the playoffs. I think it's incumbent on Doug Peterson to play his number one offense for a good deal of the Week 17 game because they've got to play better or else this is going to be a very short playoff run for the Philadelphia Eagles. And now my extended conversation with Ryan Leaf. Back on the special edition of the MMQB podcast with Peter King. This is our holiday edition uh, of the podcast. And I really wanted to do somebody uh, very special and somebody who I've gained so much admiration for over the last few years, uh, in part because of the life he has led uh, the mistakes in his life that he's overcome and what he's doing with his life now. Um, I've got a, I, I've, I, I've known Ryan Leaf uh, for, I don't know, maybe about 20 years, ever since he came into the NFL. Um, and I, I just, I thought it would be great at this time of year, particularly, to hear his story and to just basically talk about the lessons he's learned and to talk about how, and, and this, I've never spoken with him about this, but how he just seems to be filled with gratitude about the turn that his life has taken. But anyway, Ryan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. You bet, Peter. That was a, quite an intro. Thank you very much. And you're welcome. It's been 20 years. Yeah, it's been I, 20 years. I was just going to say, so 20 years ago this month, you were in New York City 
uh, at the Heisman Trophy Award uh, ceremony at the Downtown Athletic Club. And you were here, I believe, with Peyton Manning, Charles Woodson. There might have been somebody else. But what do you remember about that weekend and sort of your introduction after a fantastic college career at Washington State uh, and you about your sort of your introduction to the big time in New York City. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite an honor, you know. Being able to represent Washington State like that um, was pretty special to be the representative there. There had never been uh, a Cougar invited to New York, uh, and I would end up finishing, I think, the highest um, anybody from Washington State ever had. So. It was a neat experience. I got to bring my dad with me. Um, till this day, I really think it was the coolest, like, celebrity thing I got to do associated with my football, you know, my football stature. Um, I knew I wasn't going to win. Um, my dad was going to be able to meet all his heroes. And I remember <laughs> after the night was closing down, it was like 2 or 3 in the morning, we were coming back into the downtown athletic club, and there were a bunch of the former winners all gathered around. Uh, the old piano in the lobby, like singing karaoke. And sure enough, like right in the middle of it all was John Leaf, my father. So that's still to this day, like the coolest thing that I've ever got to do when it's, when it's been associated with football. What, who was, do you remember who was there that night or who was there that, yeah. that weekend who, who you met and talked to? Yeah, it was Tony Dorsett. It was Archie Griffin. It was a bunch of the old Notre Dame winners. I, I, you know, I should, I should know their names. My father did. Yeah. Um, and, and he, he was just in awe because those are the ones that he grew up watching and admiring and he got to meet all of them. And, um, but you know, every past winner was there. I mean, in, in, in the old downtown athletic club before nine 11 happened and it was, uh, you know, destroyed and it was, it was just the old, the old hotel rooms, the, the steamers that were in the, the in the uh in the rooms and everything like that it was a it was just a neat thing and it was randy moss was the fourth um just you know three hall of famers that that heisman class will be remembered for forever and uh you know i think for a long time i probably either i kind of resented it or just you know when i saw that picture of us four i'd always kind of feel less than um until of course i really you know found out what what life's truly about, and now I can really just be grateful for what a neat, neat night and a neat opportunity to be around, around an event like that. See, I, I mean that. I'm so glad to hear you say that because what would be a shame is is if you looked back on that part of your life uh, because of how your NFL career ended. You say, "Oh my God, I don't want to remember anything about that." That is one of the coolest things that could happen to a young person and it happened to you. So why not just say, Hey man, that was a cool weekend. That was a really cool night to be with those guys. Right. Cause no one, I mean, who in this world would get to experience something like that and not be able to look back on it as a, just an amazing positive. Uh, what would happen with my NFL career, um, you know, affected me so that, I couldn't look back on those great achievements and those fun things I got to experience and find joy in that. And of course, you know, finding new perspectives because of the further bottom that I would hit has allowed that to, you know, be a reality and, you know, super excited um, that that's a possibility. Um, You know, the funny thing about it is, is that most people would look when I say I now have the life of my dreams, they would look 
at that picture and see the four of us in there, and they they want to say, you know, no, the 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 three other guys have the life of your dreams, Ryan. And I just I go, it just, I just I took a different route, but we I got to the same place uh, as as each and every one of them have because I feel with the interactions that I've had with those other three in the years now that they feel pretty peaceful at peace and, and, and happy with their lives. And that's exactly kind of the place I'm at. So it just, it was just a different route, one that a lot of different human beings take. Um, and it, uh, it got us to the same place. This is the MMQB podcast. QB podcast. State farm knows that for football fans, your car and home are more than just stuff. They're some of your most valuable possessions. Whether it's the truck that gets you to every tailgate or the place where you watch your favorite team with your favorite people. But life can be a real tough opponent. So when it comes to insuring your car or home, you need a strong defense like State Farm. Because they know it's more than just a car or a house. So why not give it the protection it deserves? It's just one more way they're here to help life go right. Talk to a State Farm agent today. This is Jim Miller and Origins is back. Recently, I gave you a behind-the-curtain look into the groundbreaking comedy Curb Your Enthusiasm. Now, it's time to take you on another ride, one that's nearly 40 years in the making. Available now, the podcast series Origins with James Andrew Miller, Chapter 2, a deep exploration into the world of ESPN. In five different episodes, we will reveal previously unheard and unpredictable moments that turned ESPN from a ramshackle couple buildings into one of the greatest media success stories of all time. Spanning its early beginnings, its meteoric rise to its current challenge state, you'll hear from all the key players in front of the camera and behind. Look for Origins with James Andrew Miller on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you download your programs. with Ryan Leaf on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So, Ryan, I I want to uh, refresh the memories of people. There's probably a lot of people listening to this who are in their 20s or even in their 30s and they won't really know Ryan Leaf. They won't right. they won't they won't really remember Ryan Leaf. And I want to impress upon people how good you were. And yeah. I, I, I want, I, I just, I'm going to remember a time in the spring of 1998. So I got an assignment for Sports Illustrated. My assignment was that I was going to go talk to six NFL uh, quarterback experts. And I was going to take, at the time, a videotape of 30 plays of Peyton Manning and 30 plays of Ryan Leaf. And I was going to show that tape to all different people in the football world. I showed it to Phil Simms. I showed it to Mike Shanahan. I showed it to Sid Gilman, the legendary old coach who's, who's now, who has now died, and also showed it to Bill Walsh. Uh, and right. so I showed it to a lot of people. And so, at, and, and just, just remember, everybody now looks at 1998 draft, Peyton Manning, the number one pick. Well, of course he's the number one pick. Peyton Manning, he's might be the best quarterback ever. He's certainly one of the best quarterbacks of all time. How could that even be a decision? And the story I wrote, these guys would have taken Peyton Manning. But I want you to I, I want people to remember that this was a contest. 
This was a real contest. And in fact, ESPN, the magazine, which was in its kind of in its infancy then, did a story. Yeah, it was on, the third, third, I think third issue. Is that right? Well, they did a yeah. story. They did a story on Manning versus Leaf, and they sent a, a, a writer on the road to spend some time with you, and to spend some time with uh, with Manning, and to just survey the whole scene. And at the end, the writer Stephen Roderick drew a conclusion about who he would take. And and so and I'm going to just read what this is so that people will understand this was no slam dunk. This was a contest. Okay, so here's here's what here's what it says. It's time to make a choice. Easy, right? Manning's better prepared, better mannered. Leaf can't even keep himself in shape. Exiled from his hometown. Runs off at the mouth. He's not worth 30 million dollar risk, right? Sorry, Archie. I'm taking Ryan Leaf. Maybe it was watching Leaf against Arizona as he implored the coaching staff, call my number, I'm hot, I'm hot. Or Ryan running by Coach Price during the first Washington game after a completion into double coverage and chuckling, didn't think I'd get that ball in there. He possesses an I-don't-give-a-crap attitude that has proven essential to Super Bowl quarterbacks from Stabler to McMahon to Favre. Come 2018, Ryan Leaf, not Manning, will be strutting up to a podium in Canton. And I just, I remember reading that because, because I wrote, not the opposite, but because I didn't take a strong stand like that, but I just said, hey, my panel says that they would take Manning. They like Leaf, but they would take Manning. And I remember when I read that, my heart kind of sank, and I said, oh, my God, I think I'm wrong. Look at how strong this guy is, pro-Leaf. But I want to know... What did you think when you when you read that, if you did, you know, say a week or so before the draft? You know, at the time, of course, in the mindset that I was in, I thought that, you know, that's about right. You know, that's I, I like I like hearing that because that's what I was thinking in my mind as well. I mean, I I had a lot of confidence uh, in what I was capable of doing and, and where I was going. The, the silly part of it all is that how quickly my confidence could be eroded um, at that level. I just was naive to the fact of what was about to happen. And uh, I didn't, I just honestly didn't understand the idea of failure as an opportunity to do it better the next time. I just saw failure as a black and white issue. And, you know, all the gray that comes with failure is, uh, is, is pretty true in this league that you are going to constantly get knocked down and you have to be able to deal with that, especially as the leader of a football team as a franchise. Um, you have to be suitably aware of how to deal with that, and, and I just simply wasn't. All those things were possible. Um, it also depends on where you go play, you know, what your mental aptitude is moving forward. I think every person that is drafted and, and get the opportunity to play quarterback in this league is, is talented. Of course, there's more talented um, athletes out there physically than others, but it's really what you do from Sunday to Sunday. And the great ones have been able to figure out a way to balance all of that media, pressure, football acumen, physical talent, all of those things. And, and there's a reason why there's just a, a small amount of very successful NFL quarterbacks in this world. One more question about history. When you look back on playing football did you always play football because you love the game 
or because you were good at it or 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 did you play football in essence because in some way anyway you felt either some obligation or you felt forced to play I loved it you know I loved competition that's what it was I, I loved to compete and I loved to win and I took that too far growing up um, that the competition part because I hated to lose and when I did lose I felt humiliated and I was going to, I immediately wanted to play again. And that second time or third time around, I had to win and I would find a way to win and in the process, find a way to embarrass you. So for me, it was the, I loved the competition and I loved, I loved playing football, but I loved playing basketball too. And I loved playing baseball. I, I just, I loved competition. And, you know, I, I, I say a lot when I speak that, that my first drug of choice was competition. And when that went away, when I just up and quit the NFL and that, that drug of mine was gone out of my body, I, I, I replaced it with another. And that's ultimately, I think what happened because it was such a mainstay of, of who I was. I mean, I was, it was my identity that I was this football player. Um, I was never really Ryan to anybody, but, and now I was going to be referred to not only as the football player, but as a failed one. And so you get drafted number two. Manning goes number one to Indianapolis. You get drafted number two to the San Diego Chargers. And it sort of felt like a bit of an ill fit right from the start. What did you think when you got drafted by him? I didn't feel that. I, we, we, we tried, Lee Steinberg and I tried our best to kind of configure that this would happen. I know that uh, Mr. Ursay was actually on the side of uh, wanting to draft me, and, and we just right. didn't want to go to Indianapolis. We wanted to go to the West Coast. We had family in San Diego. You know, it was the beach. It was, you know, it was just a better fit, I thought. I thought Kevin Gilbride was going to teach me how to play the quarterback position like he had done with Mark Brunel and, of course, Warren Moon in his days at Houston, and I was really looking forward to that. June Jones would be my quarterback coach. Um, I just didn't understand the dysfunction um, that was inside that organization, and then I contributed to the, the massive destruction and dysfunction of that organization with my performance and my behavior. Kevin Gilbride was fired in week five. Um, June Jones would just hang on the rest of the year as the interim head coach and then play or then take off for the job in Hawaii. So for me, it was, I wasn't really thinking about, you know, perseverance or preservation more or less, but actually how it was going to, I think it's a perfect, you know, definition of, of who I was. I was really thinking about me uh, rather than, um, than us when it came to that, that choice and where I ended up. Did it make sense at the end of the day that basically you only played three years, you played two years in San Diego, one year in Dallas, and and you you only played twenty five games in your in your career? Did it make sense to you? Did you feel like you just had to get out? Yeah, my pride, of course, my pride wouldn't let me be the backup quarterback. Yeah, and which is silly. I I, I was speaking to the. Marshall football team this past weekend and I looked at them all in the eye and I said what if I told you you could be the backup quarterback or a backup on an NFL team for 12 to 15 years 
you know, making six figures and doing the thing that you love, who would, who would take that? And every one of them raised their hands. And when I was in Seattle under Matt Hasselbeck and Trent Dilfer and, and having coach Holmgren coach me and groom me, um, and the idea of being the possibly the third string quarterback or the backup, my pride just, my pride just killed me. It just wouldn't allow that to be the case. And, you know, I just simply said, you know what, I got all these things that make me successful, money, power, and prestige, and that will be good enough. And I was tired of being beat up not only physically, but also, you know, mentally um, from not only the fans, but of course the media and just everybody else. And I just thought I'd be able to kind of, you know, you know, walk into the sunset and, and not have to deal with it again. I just, I didn't realize how it was going to follow me and how much it was going to affect me moving forward. Otherwise, you know, I don't know if I, I quit after four years. I don't think that's just, it's it, literally what it was. I quit, you know, I, I think I used the definition of retirement, but you know, who the hell retires at 27 years old? It just, it doesn't happen. And I, I just didn't, again, I did not see what was about to happen to me personally and uh, professionally as well moving forward. Do, do you think your uh, failures ended up leading you to uh, either substance abuse or, you know, going down the wrong path? Was that a, was that a huge part of it? Or do you think that would have happened to you anyway? Well, I don't know if it necessarily would have happened. I wasn't, you know, I like to I like to tell people I was a drug addict long before I ever took a drug too because just behaviorally I was angry I was judgmental I was a narcissist uh, I had anxiety you know all those things were were there before the drugs ever came but I do know that they helped cope with those feelings of failure and depression that existed it was like three months after I'd retired and I was in Vegas for a, a fight and they were announcing the celebrities in the audience. And they were, it was like Charles Barkley and Tiger Woods and Dr. Dre and the audience was just cheering loudly. And they announced my name as a celebrity in the audience. And, I, and the whole MGM grand just like booed and hissed. And it was, that of course had happened to me before playing football. That just, yeah. that's how it is. But I always had this armor on. And for whatever reason that night, it was just, I was just kind of filleted and displayed to everybody. And it wasn't about like, oh, we don't like him as a football player because he, played for the team we didn't like, but this was actually about like, you know, we don't like him as a human being. And sure enough, that night, uh, an acquaintance of mine offered me some Vicodin and um, I was going to be walking in and out of rooms that night at parties where there were Hall of Famers and Super Bowl champions. And I just always felt less than and judged in front of those men. And he gave me those pills and I walked in and out of those meetings, the rest of those parties, the rest of the night and I didn't feel any of that. I mean, it worked exactly how it was supposed to. It, it killed that pain. It killed all that stuff. And uh, it would become a crutch of mine that, you know, you know, simultaneously was killing me as well, giving me this relief for the next eight years. And did you know in those eight years, did you really feel that, that man, I got to get control of myself? Or what did you feel? I just kind of was resigned to the fact that this is life, you know, that I, I didn't want to feel the feelings that I was feeling when I wasn't, you know, on this medication. And it just became life, you know. I was, I was a shut-in. I was in this, in my multi-million dollar house in 
San Diego, uh, you know, with the blinds closed, just taking pills and like watching reruns of sitcoms in the West Wing. That was my life. And I was resigned to the fact that this was okay. This is, this is how it is, you know, and then periodic and sporadic, you know, trips in the public realm to make people think everything was okay. Uh, You know, I, I would suspect that if social media would have existed back then, that it would have looked very similar to what maybe the last couple of years of Johnny Manziel's life had looked like, you know, it just yeah. was wanted to present like everything was okay. Um, you know, saying that I was still had all these things that I still had all this money, which made me powerful. And then the prestige of, even though I wasn't a current football player, I was a former NFL player and that was, that was good enough. Um, you, Ended up, uh, ended up going to prison. I think for thirty-two months, if I'm not mistaken. You ended up going to prison because you uh, broke into a house, right, and and stole to to sort of feed your addiction. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you really feel that going to prison, and especially an acquaintance you you met in prison, really helped save your life. I do. I mean, I don't recommend. Uh, I don't stand. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh, but yeah. just the way you said that, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm really grateful how, for having done that. Um, I also am not a. Um, I don't recommend um, nonviolent drug offenders um, should go to prison. I, do, I don't think they should. In my case, it was different. I had to be humbled in a different way. You know, I had to be humbled to the point of of waking up in that prison cell and, you know, having, having felt marginalization for the first time in my life, you know, the judge simply said, you, Ryan, you have no value to society and I'm going to give you a number and warehouse you. And nothing changed. I mean, I didn't see it then. I mean, nothing changed for the first 26 of those 32 months. I didn't do anything but sit on my butt. I didn't go outside. I ate bad food. I mean, prison's not a deterrent. It's an alternative society uh, in this country there's it's just it's just full um, of another society is that all it is and i wouldn't i wasn't doing anything to better myself uh, and then like you like you mentioned i was you know god bless me with uh with a roommate who um gave me a, a completely different perspective uh on how to change and there were many before him uh for whatever reason at that time I was open to hearing it and then open to acting on that, um, that, that opportunity to make a change, uh, a significant change in my lifestyle. And you ended up, uh, you ended up, uh, I, I believe, and I read this in the, in a USA Today story, you ended up actually teaching, uh, other inmates, uh, how to read or, or you, 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 you help some inmates with reading lessons. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah. So that, that day, um, you know, about 26 months in my roommate, just, I don't know if he had enough of my self-loathing or, or my, you know, just indifference to being better. And he just, he was an Iraqi Afghanistan war veteran. And he, he just said, you need to get your head buried out of the sand, man. Um, you don't understand the value you have to not only the men in here, but for when you get out. And he said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go down to the prison library and help these guys who don't know how to read, learn how to read. And 
Of course, now I know it was a defining moment. I went begrudgingly, um, but I did go, and I went back. And before I knew it, it was a week, and then two weeks, then a month, and I realized that I was actually being of service to someone else for the first time in my life. And that was a significant change. And I started laying my head down at night, feeling better about myself and better about my circumstances and wanting to possibly get out and do something. And what that was, was hope. I mean, hope developed out of all this, um, out of a simple, simple gesture by a guy that saw potential. And of course, this is something that coaches and family members and people have tried to do for years. And I can't tell you why in that moment. Um, something shifted. Either I was ready. Um, I, I can't tell you why, um, but I know I did, and that prepared me for what was about to come when I walked out of those prison doors. When you got out of prison, when, when was that exactly? It was December 3rd, 2014, so I just had my three-year anniversary last, uh, I guess, two Sundays ago. How difficult was it to get sober? Well, it was easy in prison because I was locked up um, initially. In but don't some work. don't some prisoners can't some? I mean, I I hear stories. I I guess they're true, but I don't know. Can't you get things smuggled into you in prison if you want to and if you have the money? You can. I just they placed me in solitary confinement for the first like like ninety seven or one hundred and ten days, and that's can't in that in that version so I, I went to 110 days the first time i'd gone 110 days without a substance in me since you know back from when i retired in the nfl so that was a good start and then when i got placed in general population and the drugs were prevalent i was just i don't know why i didn't peter i don't know why i didn't use it um it was the perfect opportunity to me. it was how i'd always done it i just would sit on my butt and watch TV and take these pills. So it was the perfect opportunity. Um, I just didn't do it. Um, I didn't get it. I didn't get better. You know, I, I was, how hard, how hard was it physically? Is it, does your body feel a, uh, you know, some, some sort of really want and desire to take uh, Vicodin or, or any of these substances? Yeah, I, I think early on, I mean, they say that, after you remove that chemical, especially the opiate chemical, it takes probably 18 months for it to dissipate from your brain chemistry. So, you know, it was always going to kind of be there, the idea of of that. Um, You know, now almost six years removed from the substance, I don't necessarily think about it that often. um, But those behaviors that existed before um, the drug use were always going to be there until I changed those. You know, the idea of lying or embellishing stories or being judgmental or angry and fearful and all those things, those always still exist um, because it's been a pattern of behavior for, you know, 38 years of your life. So, you know, for the next 38, um, I'm going to have to continually work on it. But luckily, I've, you know, found a different way to live, and that's about accountability and and having people around you who actually call you on your stuff. Uh, when you act out, um, and in particular for me, ego and pride, and because uh, you have blinders onto that a lot of the times because that's who you've been your whole life doesn't mean it changes overnight just because you stop taking a substance. And uh, you know, I've I, I placed a service first kind of foundation in, in, in this living, 
this new lifestyle, and, and that's presented itself in a positive with the people I surround myself with. How did you connect with the Transcend Recovery Program, and mm-hmm. why did you want to help others who have gone down your road? It's a good story. Um, I was in my inpatient um, treatment facility because when I got out of prison, even though I had been sober for 32 months, I, I knew I had to build a foundation of A, physical health, and B, um, emotional health. Um, and that's what I did. And while I was there, I reached out to a company here in Los Angeles called Transcend Recovery Community, and they are a sober living environment with homes in, in Los Angeles, New York, and Houston. And I reached out to their COO, Christian, and I kept calling and calling and calling, asking for a job until finally he, he answered. And he said, I get it, dude. You want a job, and uh, you need to send me a resume, and we'll, we'll see what we can do. He gets off the phone, and he, I guess he, he told his business partner, he's like, this dude keeps calling and bugging me for a job. And the funny thing is he's got the same name as that football players. <laughs> I know. And uh, um, he uh, invited me over and did the interview. And he said, normally, Ryan, we start guys out at $10 an hour, but we're going to start you out at 15 And uh, And uh, apparently I gave him this big bear hug. And just the idea that I was making $5 million a year, Peter, and I was miserable um, to being offered a job for $15 an hour was, was very, very amazing. It was amazing to, uh, to see that that was possible, that, that money for me was something that you just, you could always make more of. It wasn't an identifier. It was just about what you were doing and whether you enjoyed doing it. And I started there. He had a bigger idea. For me, with Transcend, he saw a bigger picture. He knew where my message would carry and the impact it would have. And after a few months of working, uh, I was promoted to program ambassador, and that has just taken off where we've been able to travel around this country and and be of service and try to help by sharing my story and, and carrying that message and helping a lot of people along the way. You're, so you travel around to cities and you sort of tell your story, and you also have told your story, I believe, at the NFL Scouting Combine. Is that accurate? Yeah, the NFL the NFL invited me um, this past March to be a mentor for the quarterback uh, position. Uh, myself, Mark Brunel, and, and Chad Pennington, and I wasn't necessarily there. I didn't want to get in the way. I just wanted to be there as a as a voice who had been through this and then also who had kind of faltered through it, um, but was more than happy to, to do that. I felt honored that I was asked a, and then B to see these young men where exactly where I was at 20 years ago uh, was pretty impactful for me because they're so young and, <laughs> and they're so much more well-prepared I feel than, than we ever were. <laughs> like, why is, why is that? Do you think why is, why were Mitchell Trubisky and, Deshaun Watson and some of these guys, as you say, Deshaun Kaiser, so much better prepared than you. I just think that they, the scrutiny is just so much higher. I mean, I disappeared in Pullman for about you know three years until that last season when we were really successful, and still the the notoriety or the, the national attention really didn't start to happen until, of course, I went along to to New York for the Heisman and, and the Rose Bowl for the national championship. So. You know, these guys are just, 
the scrutiny is so much greater and I think are found out much earlier. Uh, though there are still, you know, unsuccessful, um, unsuccessful journeys into the NFL, I think they're just much more, much more well prepared heading into that than, than I ever was. Um, and that's just, I think that's just progress, you know, it's just progress and perspective and the open-mindedness of these young men. I, I really enjoyed hearing some of their questions, you know, it wasn't about them. It was about, you know, what they needed to be successful to help the team as a, as a leader. Cause I, it's hard to walk in as a 21 year old and be the leader of men, right? men who were going to go home after practice and take care of their family rather than go to your house and play dominoes and drink beers like in college. I mean, it's, it's a different, it's a job. And if you're not rightly prepared for that, it can take over pretty quickly in the negative. Who do you remember at the Combine last year spending time with? And and if you, and if you followed any of these guys this year uh, as they have started their NFL lives? Yeah, um, well, I had a great group. I had Sean Watson and Patrick Mahomes and Davis Webb and uh, Nathan Peterman, that, that, that crew. And um, Patrick Mahomes was very, very interested as well as Deshaun Watson. And I could really tell one of the biggest things I said to Deshaun was just because you're a great football player doesn't make you a great person. And you saw early on, especially with Hurricane Harvey happening, him donating his first, his first game check, the, the humility that comes with that and the understanding and seeing that injury happen this year only in, emboldens my thought process of him and what he'll be like when he comes back. I think he's got a great perspective of what's important and football is just a small part of that. Yeah. Um, do you watch much football these days? I, I, I watch college football religiously. Do of you course, really? With my new, with my new jobs, um, where I'm an analyst for, I, I have to kind of keep, keep impressive. It's a hard for me to watch the NFL, not because I, I miss it or, or, or have a disdain for it or anything like that. It's just kind of hard to watch it from, from kickoff to, to the end of the game. Um, just because it's, I don't know. It's a bit watered down and boring for me. It just yeah. maybe too sterile. It's, they're just too good. I don't know. Um, well, uh, what I would I'll, think, what I would think would be different compared to college, at least in my opinion, you even like you're, you're in Los Angeles now you have the Rams and, you know, you watch the Rams on TV, and they're fun to watch. And Sean McVay is a, is a really bright, young, imaginative coach, and, and golf is good. But, you know, there just doesn't seem to be the same sort of fervor as there is for a college game. I mean, people on the East Coast would say, hey, what's the Apple Cup? Well, you know, the Apple Cup to Ryan Leaf and to and to guys who've played at Washington and Washington State, that's like an NFC championship game or something. That is a that's a gigantic event when Washington State plays Washington. And 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 I think a lot of people who are just NFL maniacs, uh, they don't necessarily see the fervor and the the really great fun you have in college football. Yeah, I mean, college for me, football to me is is just the innocence of it. It's just though it's huge money, and it is now we know that. But the the players, they still don't get that. This is this is this is what it's all about. This is what they've always wanted to do their whole lives. And and you make a decision when you're 18 years old on who you're going to be the rest of your life, right? I made a decision when I was 18 that I was going to be a Cougar for the rest of my life, no matter what. That was going to be my alma mater, and that's who I was going to be. 
you don't go to a school, and it doesn't matter. I mean, it could be every – it doesn't have to be a football player. A guy that went to that school or a girl that went to that school is a cougar too, and we all have this in common. And it brings us together years and years and years down the line. Where then the NFL, you know, there's a rabid fan base, but you, you just kind of pick it up. Maybe it's the city you um, end up in professionally, uh, or maybe it's a, a city where you grew up in and, and you, you like that football team, but you don't really have this – necessarily personal association to yeah. it as as you do with the college teams yeah i i always tell people uh I, i'm a red sox fan and i go to i don't know three or four red sox games every year even though i live in new york and i remember when johnny damon went in free agency from the uh red sox to the yankees and he would come back right. to fenway park and they'd boo the crap out of him and i would say listen here's the thing johnny damon was born in Orlando, grew up in Orlando, and his first team was the Kansas City Royals. And so he went to the Red Sox after a while, and he played for the Red Sox. They won a World Series. And then the New York Yankees offered him $12 million more in a contract than the Red Sox did. And you expect him to stay in a place that I'm sure he loved. I mean, he loved playing for Boston. But you expect him to stay in a place for $12 million less? Maybe some people would, and I wouldn't criticize anybody for any decision they made. But how possibly can you think that the guy is disloyal, or whatever the word you would use, to go play for your arch rival? It's not Johnny Damon's arch rival. He didn't grow up hating the New York Yankees like you did as a fan. And so I think sometimes fans just end up putting their... um, putting their thing on you, you know, like probably there's a lot of Charger fans who hate you because you were the second pick in the draft and you didn't deliver and you you cost them or what, what whatever it was. But, you know, like that's not – that's not I, I don't want to say that's not your problem, but it really isn't your problem, you know. Sometimes draft picks don't work out. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm sure they do. I mean, people are – you know, the NFL has become, you know, it, it, it is an institution, but it, it's almost a drug in itself, right? It, it takes people away from their lives on Sundays. They, they can escape. It's a way of escapism, and they become these, you know, it's, it's nothing but rooting for their, their team and, and the right. league. And, and, you know, the self, you know, the, the, that importance is, it outweighs any human element, right? It's not a human being out there because they wouldn't get mad at Johnny Damon for that if they just kind of looked at him as a human being because, you know, that team, if he had a bad year, that team would cut him regardless. You know, it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's not a personal thing. This is a business, and fans don't see it as a business, right? Fans see it as, as their, their lives, their lives on the weekend, and that's, that's what it is to them. They root for this team. They're loyal to this team. If you're not loyal back, then you are disowned, right? You are, you are, or you have the scarlet A on your on your chest moving forward. And you know the things with the Chargers, I, I have a lot of respect for uh, for the San Diego Chargers because they gave me my dream, right? Right. I mean, it's what I wanted to do since I was four, and it was pretty difficult to go from being, you know, probably the most loved guy in San Diego after week two to, to possibly the most hated guy in San Diego after week four of that rookie year. I mean, that was, was a traumatic experience um, on my part, having to, to go from there. And you don't, as a kid, you don't know what the hell to do with that. You're, and if you're not willing to ask for help or see a therapist or, or do something in that moment, 
to try to help navigate that, you're just going to crash and burn. That's that's all that's inevitably going to happen. Finishing up with Ryan Leaf, I got two more questions for you. I noticed, I look at your Twitter timeline uh, over the weekend, and you got a tweet uh, uh, from a Ryan Sams, and he said, Ryan D. Leaf, congrats on the birth of your child. You responded to my tweet a while back, two days after I took my last pill. Seeing you take the time you to respond made me feel so special. Today is my 90-day mark. Thanks, Ryan. You inspire us all. Go Cougs. So you hear from people like that. What does it mean to you? I mean, that's, uh, I don't know, I'm getting a little emotional here. Right? Um, that's the coolest thing in the world, right? Because, Peter, I was hopeless. I was as miserable as you can imagine at a point, you know, where I just, I didn't think there was any hope. And to have somebody be able to reach out to you and tell you that your story, your your struggle, what you went through that you're now grateful for was the inspiration that helped them move forward um, is incredibly validating. And it's a big reason why I do what I do because I initially didn't want to do this. You know, I didn't want to be public in my recovery because I kind of wanted just to disappear and hopefully nobody would ever look at me again, but it doesn't matter. People are going to look at me. People are going to talk about me uh, for many reasons, um, whether they're football oriented or because of my criminality uh, and the expectations that existed. But my story can be inspirational, uh, just like Ryan Sam's story is going to be inspirational. I mean, I'm going to take an inspiration, a, mo- a moment from that. Um, and by me retweeting it, um, maybe somebody else will see it and feel the same way. And before we know it, this opiate epidemic is, uh, we have a handle on it because it's out of control right now. And there's a big reason why I, d- I-, I stay right in the middle of recovery, because I know I'm safe there. Um, this this disease picks off outliers, guys that want to do it themselves and and uh, don't have an answer. And that just uh, thank you for bringing that up. That's that, that was a pretty uh, pretty neat thing. And and I get messages like that all the time, right? Um, the moment I decided to be public and I went on the Dan Patrick show in San Francisco during that Super Bowl, it wasn't the idea that this was going to happen. All this was going to happen that day was just simply sitting down and being honest and vulnerable in front of a, a group of guys that actually stood by me uh, for a long, long time. And I was honest and I was vulnerable and it impacted people and it continues to do it, you know, on a daily basis. And I'm so grateful for that. Ryan, if you had one piece of advice for, and I'll make this uh, just an anonymous, like a national drug czar. If somebody said, Ryan, what do we do about this scourge of opioids in this country that is taking hundreds of lives a day all over the United States, in poor communities, in rich communities, uh, what can we do? Well, I'm a big proponent, a proponent of legalization. I, I think the model that Portugal uses uh, is tremendous. The, major, the majority of overdoses in this country are, are because of undisclosed items that are mixed with most likely heroin um, and not understanding what's in that. Um, that's why I think the legalization process, though many people argue against that with me, 
and my mother in particular, she believes that people would just be lined up around Walgreens and CVSs uh, waiting to pick up opiates. And I just, I had to remind her mom that everybody isn't like her son, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, our ability to educate people, tax it, um, make changes, build facilities to educate and treat uh, this disease rather than up our, you know, criminal forces behind it and the say no to drugs campaign. Um, if you're, if you're a dope addict, if you're a junkie, you're going to get your drug no matter what. Um, that's not going to change. There's the consequences don't exist in your mind because you're so freaked out psychologically from this opiate that you're willing to do anything. I was willing to walk into people's homes in Montana where everybody has a gun to find pills to try to make me right. You don't have, you know, the ends justifies the means when you're at that point. It affects you a psychological way. So that's my first remedy to it. Um, you know, that's a long way off. Um, the understanding that this is, you know, this, this disease isn't necessarily about the drug. It's about self-esteem and understanding that you are just as important as any other human being out there um, and removing the shame and guilt that comes with this. And the first step, of course, is acknowledging that this is a disease. It's not a choice. You know, this is this has something to do with brain chemistry. And the more we continue to educate and shine lights on it, that's how we're going to combat it uh, right now until we can figure out something more, um, you know, on, on the legal side of things. Ryan Leaf, this has been a fun, fun, educational, and really, really informative conversation. I want to wish you Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and tell you that I'm just really, really grateful to you for the life you're leading because it's so important to this country right now at this time in our history. So thank you so much for joining me and for telling your story honestly and uh, and so well. Thank you, Peter. I, uh, you know, I've always respected you. We've known each other for 20 years and it's just been a, it's been a crazy 20 year journey, but you know, I got, I kind of got to the place I was meant to get to, uh, just like I said earlier, just took a different path. Uh, my story isn't too different than anybody else's uh, who's dealt with this um, and have come out the other side. So um, thank you for taking the time. Uh, it should be a great, hopeful, you know, holiday podcast. And I know a lot of people will get a lot out of it. So thank you. All the best to you. Huh? Good luck. Yes, sir. Thanks to my guest, Ryan Leaf. If you enjoyed this conversation, Be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Adam Schefter, Chris Mortensen, and Roger Goodell. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King, on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks, of course, to the fine folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks to my sponsor, State Farm. Please support State Farm the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. 
Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.